Welcome to 2021 and Happy New Year to our listeners. Today is the start of a short series of Nature Magic podcasts, talking to people who are dedicated to nature education. We have a lot to learn from children. Allowing them the time and space to connect to nature not only educates them and allows them a secure foundation in life, but also educates us how to reconnect to the natural world and the benefits that brings to ourselves and the planet. Today I'm speaking to Michelle Lawton. Michelle founded Stretch the Imagination in 2002. Stretch is a program where children are free to explore and delve deeply into their experiences. Michelle has a passion for connecting children to the natural world and she started The Natural Classroom in 2010, bringing children out of the classroom and into nature during their weekly school days. Over the past 10 years, The Natural Classroom has developed into a respected preschool program, grounded in nurturing children's development through creativity, inquiry and connecting to the natural world. Michelle is also invested in supporting professional development and encouraging the growth of educators who come to work at Stretch. She continued her own education in 2014 by studying with John Young and the educators of the Eight Shields Institute. And she recently finished studying with Dan Siegel at the Mindsight Institute in Los Angeles. We are lucky to speak to Michelle today, who has such a deep understanding of the hands-on approach to engaging children with nature and also the logistics of setting up programs such as the Natural Classroom. Welcome, Michelle Lawton. Hi, everybody. It's lovely today to be speaking to Michelle Lawton. Thanks so much for having me. You're so welcome. Uh, Would you like to tell us a little bit about where you are? And um, we're going to really dig deep in this series about connections with nature and engaging with nature. So all the exciting things that you do. Sure. So I'm um, based in San Francisco and in the heart of the city, I run a preschool called Stretch the Imagination, where we have children aged two to about six years of age. Um, We even have a toddler program for 18 months to 24 months um, that's 100% set in the forest normally um, during the year, during the school year. And we use all of the green spaces that we are really lucky to have in San Francisco. So we have a federal park, the Presidio, um, that has been for 10 years welcoming us into the forest. And then um, we also have Golden Gate Park, which is huge, which we're using a lot this year um, because of COVID. There's so many more people out in the nature spaces. And so we've kind of spread out across the city. But we really do explore all the nature spaces around San Francisco and really Um, have what we call a connection model um, versus education or recreation. Our our goal is about, um, is focused on connection of young children and and really just humans to the other species of the world. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. Um, So we will dig deep into what you're doing. And I'd just like to ask you the, the normal nature magic questions. How did you become a nature lover? You know, I was lucky enough to have been raised in nature. Uh, my parents lived on an island actually in the southeast of, of the United States where 
it was very undeveloped. Sadly, it's a very developed kind of golf mecca. It's called Hilton Head Island in South Carolina. But when they first went there, there wasn't a hospital. There, there wasn't, my dad and mom used to always say there were more mosquitoes than there were humans. Um, and really I, the ocean was one side of um, my life and then the forest was the other. And we, it was the seventies. So parents weren't really, um, you know, that overlooking of their children. And we were, we were eight and then told back to come back when we were hungry. And we spent most of the hours, you know, in nature by ourselves. And so I just, by default, really connected with the natural world. I mean, it was my whole playscape with my siblings um, growing up. Mm -hmm. And how did you get into the nature education? Actually, that was really interesting. I had been an educator. I was running Stretch, um, the preschool that I have. I've been doing it for about seven years, I would say, when I read um, the book Last Child in the Woods, which is by an author from the United States named Richard Louvre. Mm -hmm. And it's all about kind of that loss of nature. It really reminded me of what I had grown up with, but then also in juxtaposition to what children were lacking and not able to connect with as much. And I was, as a director of a preschool, I thought, wow, I have the opportunity to bring children into nature right now. I read that book in March and we started our first natural classroom program the next September as the school year started and um, have been doing it for the last 10 years where we bring children into the forest every week, rain or shine, which is also really important to me. It's not just on the sunny days do we learn to love nature, mm -hmm. um, but to see it through the seasons and the weather and all the changes. And so that really launched, that was the spark. And then it's really developed over time. I came in contact with a man by the name of John Young here, who has the Eight Shields um, organization and Weaving Earth, which is another local group um, based in a connection model. And that deepened for sure our core routines and how we worked in nature. Um, and before that, I actually met John Young through a woman by the name of Claire Warden, who's out of Scotland, who has been doing amazing work in Scotland and was really inspired by her work as well of just what you could do with really young children because she works with preschool age children. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have the greatest respect for small children, even pre-verbal. We sometimes think, mm -hmm. um, look down on them and think they don't know what's going on, but they can answer questions if you just give them enough time and try and understand them. Mm -hmm. um, so have you any yes. particular success stories um, with engaging with nature or any failures that might um, entertain us? Yeah, um, you know, one of the things I think is a big success is when we first started this program in our school, it was really about bringing the children out. And there were certain parents that were a little bit worried. I mean, I think in the beginning when your child's two, some parents felt safer with their children in the walls they dropped them off at um, than in a big forest. But really quickly over time, we engaged the parents, they volunteer in the program and we engaged them in the same um, process as we were engaging the children. And I think that was a huge success. Our whole community is now connected with nature. People come to our school for that connection and the, the parents really are, are doing the practices on the weekends when we're not around, but it's becoming, you know, it's not only the young children, but it's whole families that are becoming nature connected. So I feel like for what our goal is, which is really stewardship and 
our number one goal, I think in some ways is for everyone to see themselves as part of the natural world, not other than outside of looking down on it or looking to it from the outside, but really part of that ecosystem. Mm -hmm. And so engaging the parents was a huge um, success, I think, um, and an important part of that process. Yeah, I totally understand that. Um, when we opened the nature center, it was for all ages. We had put in facilities for children, but um, we quickly realized the only people that wanted to come at the start were the children. And <laughs> the parents were bringing them because, um, you know, we want to go and there's an adventure playground and there's animals and this and that. So we became quickly known as a family place which went mm -hmm. against us uh, in one way, because uh, some of the adults that wanted a nice leisurely stroll were thinking, oh my, no, that place is completely wedged with children. <laughs> we'll go somewhere else. <laughs> but um, the children have taught the adults. And over the last seven years, we've had 20,000 children taking the Leave No Trace school tour. Wow. Yeah, and we did give them a little incentive to come back. We give them sort of money off voucher, but they all drag their parents back and bring them around the nature walk to teach them the lessons so I do agree it's the adults we need but somehow it's easier to get through to the children I think children are so connected naturally to nature you know I feel like if I look back at my history when I was younger I was really connected and then over time whether I moved to a big city like I lived in New York for a little while and um, it disconnected there were different parts of my life that I became more disconnected from it but then again, working with children brought me back into connection, I think, with, with mm -hmm. nature, because they are naturally um, drawn to the natural world. Mm. What's the most sort of popular activity you might do with, say, the preschoolers or even the little babies? So we really have a process that we go through um, that is that have these core routines that we do every week. I mean, for sure, the short answer is we do bird sits um, every single time we're out there. And that is something that really is a big part of our work with young children. But we have all of these core routines. We always start together in a gratitude circle acknowledging nature, being in nature and giving thanks for for nature and I have to say that's where children's words shine and some yeah. of the things that they put forth and that they notice really stop the adults in their tracks and make us more sensory engaged because they're really feeling the whole world with their whole body especially in a preschool age they're feeling the wind they're feeling the rain on their cheek so it really brings us into the forest and then we go through this whole cycle of routines, whether it's game and scavenger hunts, and we always have a portion of our day dedicated to sitting in silence, listening to the birds, both with our eyes open, with our eyes closed. And then as the children get older, they have a journal and they pick one page to capture and draw something that really made a mark on them for that day in nature. And so I would say bird sits are one of the biggest parts of the, our process. And children come to learn the calls of birds when a predator's on the land. And they kind of think they can, I mean, they learn to communicate or understand the communication of birds, which really fires them up and connects them deeply because they, they feel like they're talking to animals. And that's something I really learned from John Young and his work and Weaving Earth and the, their work where they call it bird language, but it's a whole process of learning to understand the how the how the other species on the landscape are communicating and join that story, so to speak. 
Mm -hmm. So bird sit is sitting in quietness, listening to the birds. And then when they're a little bit older, maybe drawing a bird. Is that yeah. correct? Yeah, and it's called sit spot in other places if you're reading about it for adults, I think a lot of the time, but the key is we always go to the same place. And so the children find their quiet space, but we go to the same place over three, you know, over at least one year, sometimes more years. And so they're seeing the changes in season. They're seeing the change from when it's really dry when we first start to when it's raining and now this time of year, January, February. So they're starting to understand the cycles and the changes in nature. So that's another key part is that consistency of going every week to the same place. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I do think that animals are a very good way in to connecting with nature. And we have mm -hmm. a variety of um, goats and cows and ponies and things, but really the easiest animal to start with with kids is the guinea pig. <laughs> and the guinea pig, <laughs> they, they sit there and they have their little noises, they buzz when they're happy and they, you know, so they start there. So even a, a, a timid child can sit with a guinea pig on a bit of carpet and then move up to feeding the goats and then approach other and then look out for other animals and, and have some sort of connection. So I love, I love the idea of yeah. that sit. That's really beautiful. I was going to say, we talk a lot about how the, um, getting the children to engage in kind of a practice I guess, of empathy of like, how do you think the animal's feeling? So if the bird is singing and then happy, or if the bird's like maybe warning uh, the rest of the birds. So with the guinea pig, it made me think of that because if they're really kind of a jovial animal, so to speak, or you can hear the buzzing, like getting them to tune into the animal and how it's feeling is, is a great empathy practice that we've really see empathy really grow over the three years that children spend in the forest in our program. Mm -hmm. and, and one of the nature magic questions is, do you have a spiritual experience in nature you'd like to share? Um, I think the, the, the little kids sharing their gratitude in the morning is wonderful. Have you anything else? Yes, you know, I think some of the experiences, I mean, for me, nature is my spiritual place, the house versus like a place of worship. Like nature is where I go to just connect with and, and recognize kind of that spiritualness in our life and just noticing all of the different ways it's connected and is really just a spiritual experience for me. But I feel like watching the the animals interact. So like watching an animal, a predator, for example, bird, you know, out there hunting or feeding its children or all of that really is humbling to see how that world exists, whether I'm there or not. And if I get to come and kind of spy on it and sit quietly and, and be a part of it, I think it's really humbling to, to see how much more is happening Mm -hmm. um, around us as humans. Yeah, I totally agree. We have um, a bird box webcam. So we have a little webcam in a bird nest and it's normally a blue titch. And the amount of work that goes on with the build, building the nest and rearing the young that would go on without us, whether we were there and has been going on, you know, is, is astounding right. when you get to see it. You know, and I think so many different animals, whether it's like the guinea pig that moves so quickly or the mouse that moves so quickly or like a great blue heron and just sitting there and watching it slowly move through the world, whether it's stalking or just in peace, like all those different 
engagements with with different species is really amazing just because it gets all of us to understand how many how much there is out there that is different life experiences mm -hmm. and it, I think it helps children as well because we don't know what they're going through some of these children at home um different traumas and things they're worried about and even children with autism we've lately had uh, a child with autism come up just to be with the horses and donkeys and he had been very distressed and the horses and donkeys really really helped a number of experiences like that in our program i feel like every year we see a child or, or a few children who would have struggled more inside the classroom if that was their only setting to be in a learning experience with peers and then we bring them into nature whether they need more space and they're kind of crashing into the walls whether we had an autistic child in our camps once we had a child once with selective mutism who didn't speak for a full year and then once we started he was part of the initial starting of this nature program and a couple months in he started to speak and just that i'll never forget that experience it was our first year starting that nature program um and just seeing a child who really just developed the, his voice in nature was so i mean talk about a spiritual experience it was really amazing to watch so we see that every year where children find more success in nature than they might just in our normal walled world of schooling yeah that's giving me shivers and it also reminds me of the story of a child who had selective mutism. I, I, I think it was a novel, but it was based on a true story. And she didn't speak for years. She was quite old at the time, eight or nine. And then they got her a pony or she was able to go to a local riding club and they got her the pony and she absolutely loved the pony. And eventually she had to say halter or lead rope or something because you just have to, you know, she was trying to do a thing. and. The, you know, the pony brought it all out and has such a success. Anything else you'd like to tell us about what you do with Stretch the Imagination and all of your work? Well, you know, one thing I'd say is something we learned this year as a silver lining to all that we're going through in this year of COVID is we normally go out into the forest once or twice a week, rain or shine every week. And this year, because of just the safety aspect of it, we spent our entire fall out in the forest five days a week. Wow. And it was really exciting to see. I mean, even going out once or twice a week, we would notice patterns. But when you were out there every single day, for example, one of our classes kind of had a great horned owl sleeping, a pair of them right near where they would meet every day. And then to notice the patterns. And then one day they were gone to, to, to question where they went, to even know that. I mean, if that had been once a week, it might've been an anomaly for them. And they might not even notice if once they were gone because they thought, oh, maybe they're only here every once in a while. But when you're there every day and you know that's their home, just like I have a home, it was just really powerful. And it happened throughout all our classes, just different patterns that I think the daily um, venture into nature really showed us. And of course, I'm sure in the years coming forward, we'll go back to, you know, I can't imagine going back to one day a week. I, I think we'd have to do two days a week now just because it's been such a valuable experience, but it really was what we turned to. I mean, nature, talk about, you know, children who are dealing with a trauma or a different situation, nature was where we turned and what allowed children to be in school since June for us. Yeah, that is that was a benefit actually, I suppose, um, from COVID. But 
it's so valuable what you're doing and even in later life and they'll be able to go back there I mean, what you've given them is so precious uh, you know they won't forget that so well no, done. we definitely hear that they continue to go back to the presidio it becomes like a beloved place for them in the world it's interesting i was in we have a program or a a group here called the Children Nature Network that Richard Louvre, the same person who wrote, wrote that book had started. And I went to one of his conferences once and he was talking or gave a challenge to everyone that, you know, if you remember a place in nature that meant something to you as a child, know that there are less and less of those places in the world today for children. And if you can take on the challenge to expose at least one child to a special mm -hmm. place in nature and ripple that out through the world. And I've always thought about that of how many children we're allowing to have this special place in nature. Any positive actions that you can suggest that we could do to support nature or even that the children could do? I think children are so powerful. I mean, there are simple, simple things like collecting trash if you see it in the planet we've had we're project-based approach to early childhood so we've had a lot of projects around how are we impacting nature like like you talk about leave no trace mm -hmm. and so just really understanding that concept and taking it upon yourself that if your neighbor leaves a trace that you can help restore nature even if you're doing it for somebody else I think I wish if I could do one thing for the planet today that we could bring back more undeveloped places like your sanctuary. I mean, it's a sanctuary for humans too to have a place to connect with nature. And as that disappears, the more that people can do to protect or to help organizations that are protecting, I think that it, it, it really is, I think, the gonna be the key to our soul surviving in the future um, because there is something very, very spiritual, like you said, or very connected, something we need um, about connecting with nature. Mm, well, um, thank connection you. So that's, that's really kind to say that. And half of, nearly half of the nature sanctuary is just left over to wilderness. And it's actually shattered limestone pavements. So there's rocks and there's hazel trees and a lot of bushes. So when we opened, people said, you know, why do you need a sanctuary for bushes? <laughs> and there was little understanding, but <laughs> they actually, the, <laughs> the mindset has changed um, and they do value right. now. <laughs> um, but those bushes, what they harbor is just, um, they're an arc for the wildlife, really. I was just, yeah. uh, when you were talking about the trash as well, um, two things came to mind. We, we have a trash experiment, which is a sort of a board with a wire on top and little compartments, and we put in the different bits of trash. So it's there permanently, and a, and a wild animal can't take it away. So there's a sort of woolly hat, and there's a plastic bottle, and some paper. And then the children go back, and there's a little sign by it, go back year after year and see what has actually rotted away and what wow. hasn't. The woolly hat obviously wasn't woolly because it's still there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Seven years. Um, but, and I yeah, asked, that's a great experience. It is. I love it that, is. It's so yeah, visual. No, it's so visual and it's, it's fairly easy to make just to make a sort of shallow square board four foot by four foot with little compartments and a wire grid on top. So you put the little, little bits of rubbish in there that animals can't take out. But I often think, too, if the children, if plastic suddenly became valuable, that we could use it for making fuel or something, the children would be quite happy to go around 
and gather it all up, <laughs> you know, right. <laughs> that would be the solution. You could pay them <laughs> or, or whatever. Right. Yeah, so they, they like doing their rubbish collecting and they like be, being useful and ticking off boxes and, you know, what can we do to help the planet? And um, are there any other activities that you do you'd like to share with us? You know, one thing I was just thinking about, it's not necessarily an activity, but it's something that informs a lot of the work is that we really have spent a lot of time reading about and listening to the indigenous people of the United States, the Native Americans lived in such connection and community with nature. And so I really, I, I think it would be interesting for everyone around the world to just investigate how did, how did people live in, you know, in harmony with nature before for survival, we needed nature, we needed to understand it, we needed to know what predators might be out there for us. Um, and now a lot of people don't technically need it to survive, they think I, I would disagree with that. But, mm -hmm. um, but I, I've just found like a lot of our practices of even giving thanks of waking up in the morning and, and giving thanks to the natural world, as we start our day with children, it comes from the Native American practices in our country. And so much of, the, of what we do if, does. And so I, that's something I think that everyone could do in their community is just who, who used to live on the land where you know, before, you know, thousands of years before we did, who lived there first in San Francisco, you know, we've, we've studied the, the tribe that lived here and um, the Ohlone people and the actual sub, uh, sect of the Ohlone people and, and just knowing that I think is really connective too. Mm, oh that's that's so interesting and the Native American culture is is so rich um, mm -hmm. I suppose we do a little bit here we think about who lived on the farm from the Iron Age people and then there's a famine village on the farm um, mm -hmm. and you know they were gathering oyster shells and things from the sea which isn't too far away to eat and I do a, an imagination exercise with them we have a a gypsy wagon shelter so it looks like a gypsy wagon but it's actually slightly larger you can fit a whole class in 20 people sitting down so they're all a bit tired at that stage and we have a drink there and I say you know if you were living here um, 100 years ago traveling around in the wagon what would you need and they're mm -hmm. like oh we need a horse and then what would you eat oh we'd eat a cow and I said like, really <laughs> <laughs> what else did you eat? You know, and it goes from there and they really have to think we go to the shop no there isn't a shop you know mm -hmm. <laughs> right yeah it's the same idea so yeah. can, can you tell us a tiny bit about um the tribe you mentioned is there anything particular that you learned about that you'd like to share well, they lived in they lived in the land and in the area that's a Bay Area, which is where San Francisco is um, today. And then they were obviously over time um, pushed out of this area as it was discovered um, and colonized and and kind of recognized for resources. But for example, um, even further north from San Francisco, which a lot of people travel to up into kind of the Sonoma Coast. The coastal Miwok is another tribe, and a lot of these tribes, for example, would harvest acorns. So mm -hmm. I've done I've done an activity with children where we harvest the acorns when it's the time we dry them. Then you grind them and you make flour, and then you learn about how you can't just eat that flour; you have to wash the tannins out, and then you can actually make like a tortilla out of it. So even that whole, of course, with children and young children, 
Um, and that I did with elementary school children actually, but um, you know, working with your hands and doing hands-on activities is the key. And they love that, but just knowing something that they kind of walk over and see on the ground around them, it was actually food before um, is an, a great activity. So things like that, where it was a staple in a culture where we don't even actually really recognize it as a as food source today. Yeah. Um, and connecting back to that. But that's a brilliant activity. Really, really, really good one. I can imagine by the time they made the tortilla, they were pretty hungry and, and bad. <laughs> <laughs> well, and so much fun, right? Because it actually, the process it takes days and 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 but the fact that then they've put all this work they've ground it they've collected it they've done all this stuff and then they actually get to eat it kids obviously love to eat but yeah cook is such a um and and it, it really makes a visual a sensual experience as well where you can you're tasting it and you're feeling it and oh um, yeah they'll never forget that they'll be saying do you remember we went yeah. <laughs> exactly. with Miss and we went and made the bacon pancakes and yeah, that's a, that's a brilliant one. Well, they're only short interviews um, on Nature Magic, but I think I've got the real crux of what you do. It's really beautiful, all the work you do. Would you like to tell everybody how they can connect with you if you'd like them to connect with you or anywhere you'd like to point them towards? Sure, absolutely. My email is a great way to connect. It's just michelle at stretchtheimagination.com, all spelled out and kind of a long email. Sorry about that. But also we have a website, um, www.stretchtheimagination.com, which is our preschool website. You can always connect to me from there. Uh, and anyone's welcome. And if you ever come, if anyone who's listening comes to the Bay Area, um, would love to connect with them as well. We're in the San Francisco. Oh, that's a wonderful invitation that we'll all be flocking over as soon as <laughs> COVID restrictions. Yeah, once those are all over, of course. Um, yeah. yeah, so I'll put those in the show notes so people have the right um, addresses. Uh, there's one thing I forgot to ask you, and um, you were talking about Richard Louvre and his book, but is there, are there any other books you'd like to recommend for people? You know, one of my favorite books that I've read in the last year and a half, two years, is a book called Braiding Sweetgrass. And it's by Robin Wall Kimmer, and she's actually a doctorate uh, biologist in the United States, and she has the most beautifully written, it's almost poetry in how it's written, and it, she does pull on her indigenous background from her father, and it's just really, it's a wonderful book, though, about how we can learn from nature and restore nature and understand it and work in harmony with it. I thought at first from the title, it was going to be like the subtitle about biology, but it's not, it's it's about life. And it's a really wonderful um, story and book. It's, it's probably one of my favorites in the last two years that I've read. Oh, that's um, lovely. I've seen the cover of it and I was wondering, but now to get a recommendation for it, I'll definitely do that. Yeah. And the other one I would say is um, Richard Lube's newest book. And it's all these great stories from really around the world about connection to other species and how smart they were. And it, it was an amazing, you know, we always think of like a dolphin as being so smart, but this was about the octopus and about so many different things. I found it a fascinating kind of storytelling as well as science and, and data-driven reality. That's a really fun book to read. Mm, that sounds fabulous. We have um, 
well, whenever we go around the nature walk, the different kind of naturey people turn up, you know, and there's been ant people and bee people and, you know, you always get to meet them. And then the guy, I can never remember the ant person, myrmecologist, something like that. <laughs> anyway, he was at the ant hill and showed us all the herbs that the ants had brought onto their garden for the, for the health mm. of the hive and the fact that they were actually gardening them. So they weren't letting them run um get woody they were trimming them off they had time as an antiseptic and and they had sage yes so i mean the intelligence of their community and we just walked past saying oh yes an anthill right right no that book is filled with stories like that i loved it if you're if you have a pet it really connected me i felt like with my dog who was like often lying on me while i was reading the book um they talk about just kind of that and how your pets like learn and to read you and then you start seeing it happen it's really amazing i loved that book it's his latest it's his latest one he just released it i think last january okay yeah, another person I hope to get on the podcast is a guy called Warwick Schiller. And I've been watching his videos working with one of our horses. And it's all about communicating with horses. And he started off being quite a tough, you know, horse fixer with problem horses. And now he's gone down the relationship path and he's completely woo-woo. And he's like, you know, walk alongside your horse and match the steps. And, <laughs> and then oh, wow. and yeah. it's totally relationship-based. It's fantastic. So, it's cool to see a transformation in someone. Uh, yes, it's so cool. And he's very humble himself about it. You know, he, he's like, now I'm totally woo-woo. <laughs> but he can still, still get it very difficult. He has a, the, his new series of videos, a very difficult man that's kicking out every time you get up on a... And he spends a long time just sort of standing around with her. And by the end, he just rips off the bridle and they're galloping around with no bridle on. <laughs> It is amazing how many people use the word humble when they're in relation with nature. I think it is a humbling experience to be in relation with nature. I think if the whole world were in relation with nature, we'd probably have a different experience. Globally. Yeah, I, absolutely. I think that's a brilliant place to stop. It was just great for you to come on the podcast. Thank you so much. Uh, really appreciate it. Yeah, so nice to connect. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Nature Magic. Please subscribe to the podcast to help with our reach and give us a rating. Each month in 2021, we're running a draw. And the prize this month is a selection of beautiful Irish gifts from the Burren Nature Sanctuary gift shop, including a stunning original Burren Flower Fairies print by local artist Susan Meany. To be in the draw, simply review the podcast and send a screenshot to mary at burrennaturesanctuary.ie. The email address is in the show notes. We hope you have a happy and healthy 2021.